Much appreciated. Um, if you want to stick a thumb in Ephesians chapter 2, you can go ahead and do that. Um, you might also put one in James chapter 2 and then maybe Mark Hebrews 11. Um, we're going to be in those three places this morning. So if you've got three thumbs, fit them in there and, and you're good. Um, I, I don't know if, if you'd agree with this. I think you probably would. Um, but I, I don't know of anything more frustrating than being told to do something, but just not knowing how to do it. So, I mean, you, you've got the, the job in front of you, but the means to accomplish it is just kind of out of your reach. I am a self-taught woodworker. Now, I don't claim to be good. I just claim to enjoy it, you know, and Jesus was a carpenter, so why not? And so um, my first project was a desk. I decided I was going to make a desk for Laura. Now, if you're to go into our office at our house right now, you would see a desk. Now, you would look at that desk and think this. I wouldn't buy it. You would think um, at, that the top doesn't necessarily sit on it perfectly. You would think that drawer doesn't, it doesn't come in and out just right. You would think that um, the stain didn't go on just perfectly. I mean, you might give it a 5 out of 10. Now, I look at that desk, and I think that is a 12 out of 10. That's not a 10. That's a 12. That, that desk is perfection. I mean, there's, there's not a better desk out there than this desk. Um, that desk has got blood, sweat, and frustration all over it. And yeah, there you go. If you're a woodworker, you would feel this right now. And, and so um, I, I tear into this desk, and, and here was the problem. I, I had something I wanted to build here. Like, I, I had the picture in front of me. I just had no idea how to do it and definitely did not have the tools to do it with. And, and so um, at the end of the day, um, there is all sorts of frustration because I didn't know what I was doing. Now, now, here's the observation. I think this is where it settles in for a lot of us in this room. Um, we, we are given these motivational do-something messages. But then on the back end, we find ourselves really frustrated trying to do them. Like, for instance, this has been the first three or four weeks of, of this place. Um, week one sounded like this. You were created to dance, to live with, to move with God. We rebelled. God saves, and then God uses saved people. You've got four seconds in the story to, to make your mark here. You've got this, this short little time frame by which you can be a part of God's story uh, before the return comes in. And so the plea of the first week was um, make a mark with your four seconds. Do something in, in your part of the story. God gives you a page in the narrative and says, go for it. Amen. Let's go for it. Okay, here was week two. Attempt something great for the glory of God. So it was trying to write something on the page. It was trying to say, here's a man named Jonathan. Here's a great attempt. Here's what great attempts take. They take initiative, risk, all these different things. Go for it. Attempt something great for the glory of God with your life. Amen. Let's do it. Week three sounded like this. It's going to require risk. It means if you want to attempt something great for the glory of God, it means you're going to have to risk. All of those, we would say, those sound great. I mean, those are all good, motivational, go get them sort of ideas. But here's the problem. We can amen those all day long. We can say great. I mean, the, the stuff is great there. But at the end of the day, we look up two months later, three months later, and we're really frustrated because there's never been a bottom line. This is how you do it. This is the bottom line thing that is necessary for you to move forward in this thing. And so here, here's the attempt this morning. It's to give the how to this whole idea of advancing the mission of God. All right, we're in this, this series called Advance, moving the mission of God forward. And this morning serves as the how. It is the means by which we move the gospel forward. 
Without this word, our church falls apart. Without this word, your faith falls apart, or you fall apart. Without this word, your marriage falls apart. Without this word, everything in life crumbles spiritually for you. Okay, it's this simple word, faith. Okay, now I want you to write this statement down. This is going to be the statement we're going to keep hearing over and over this morning. Faith causes movement. That's what faith does. Faith causes movement in your life and in my life. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2 and try to to build out what faith is and and how this thing works for us. Ephesians chapter 2 starts like this. Um, Or actually, skip down to verse 8. It goes like this. For by grace you have been saved. And here's what Paul's saying there. Um, You're not saved by your merit. You're not saved because you bring something to the table for God. You don't come to the table with God and say, hey, God, look at what I'm bringing here. It just doesn't work that way. You've got nothing that God doesn't already own. So it's not your intellect that gets you saved. It's not that you're better than somebody else that gets you saved. It's not um, your gifts and abilities that get you saved. It's not your look that gets you saved. It is not, we have got nothing to offer in this thing. Here's what Paul's saying. It is by grace that you're saved. Now, here's how the grace of God practically works in your heart and mind. Um, okay, if you back up to like verse 1, 2, 3, here's what Paul's going to say in Ephesians 2. Um, he's going to start it off by saying, um, here's a picture of you. This is what you bring to the table. You're dead in your sin. This is what you bring. Now, um, I'm not brilliant, but I know this about dead people. They don't move. They don't feel. They don't make like a dying gasp toward God. Dead people are dead. Okay, so he's saying spiritually, this is what you bring to the table. You're dead. Not only that, but you have rebelled to such a degree that you're enemies with God. In other words, he's on this team, you're on that team, and you're fighting against that team. Like you are an enemy of God. Okay, now here's what grace does. In the middle of that, in the middle of this rebellious God, like shaking our fist at God moment, the grace of God slams in and crushes us crushes our rebellion, crushes all of that. And and almost like akin to Genesis 2, where God breathes life into dust and there's a human being, God breathes life into a rebellious heart, creating it new again. That's what grace is. That's why we're saved is because the grace of God crushes us to such a degree, breathes life into us, making us completely new. Now, that moment, now this is what kind of enables this next phrase. It's going to say this, for it's by grace you have been saved. Next phrase, Grace enables this next phase, uh, phrase, through faith. Okay, so here's what faith is. Faith is this response to the grace of God. When grace slams into us, crushes us, faith is this response back to God of complete surrender. Here's one of the ways I like to articulate what faith is. Saving faith goes like this. The grace slams into us, crushes us, and then here's what happens in response. We joyfully surrender. Okay, so it's not just a surrender. There's a joyful surrender. And then here's the second part of that. And an abiding belief in the promises of God. That's how faith responds to grace. So so God's grace hits us. And our response back to that is a joyful surrender and an abiding, not like a one-day emotional belief, but an abiding lifelong belief in the promises of God. That's what faith is. It's that response back. Okay, so, so here's the question I think we need to start on this morning. Do you have saving faith? Let me, let me just throw that question out there to you. Paul's going to say this. It is by grace, God's initiative, God's work that enables faith. And we respond back a joyful surrender 
a lifelong and abiding belief in the promises of God? Do you have saving faith? Now, here's how this worked out for me as a seventh grader. I'm sitting, like, I am a punk seventh grader, not just a seventh grader, the punk variety of seventh grade. That's what I am. Um, The world revolves around me. If the world doesn't revolve around me, if the universe is not orbiting around Rodney, the world's going to know about it, especially my mom and dad. That that was me as a seventh grader. Um, You may have one of those in your home. Okay, so as a seventh grader, here comes the grace of God crushes breathes life into, no longer dead, but now alive. And here comes this joyful surrender back, this response back, this faith back, a joyful surrender and this abiding belief in the promises of God as a seventh grader. This was the defining turning moment for me. Okay. So let me ask you the question. Saving faith. Has that been had? That response, has it been given back to God? Okay, now, now here's going to be the rest of the sermon. The rest of the sermon is putting your answer to the test. Like, here's what I'm going to assume about most people in here. Most people in Bible Belt world say yes to that question. Most people do. And so use the rest of this sermon to say, is that an authentic yes or is that a, my yes? Okay, so here we go in James chapter 2. Faith causes movement. If you don't have movement, you don't have faith. Okay, now here's going to be one of the biggest misconceptions. And this is really what James is going to deal with in in chapter two. And this is all in our world in Bible Belt Christianity. Like this is all over the place. And it goes like this. Here's what faith is to most people that you and I would just run into. Faith is, I acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross. I acknowledge that that on the cross, um, Jesus paid for sin. That grace pays the bill. Jesus paid the bill. Okay, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that Jesus rose from the dead. That is faith for most people. I acknowledge these facts. But that is not biblical faith. Biblical saving faith is this joyful surrender, this abiding belief in the promises of God. It's not just an acknowledgement of facts. And this is what James is about to war against. Here here we go in James chapter two, verse 14. Here's what James is going to say. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? It's a rhetorical question. It's an obvious, it's no good. Like if you don't have movement associated with your faith, in other words, if you say you have faith and there is no movement, this faith that you think you have is absolutely no good. It's not doing anything. Okay, so so here we go. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Obvious answer. Next phrase. Can that faith save him? Another rhetorical question. No, it can't. If that faith produces no movement in your heart and in my heart, in your life and in my life, then the faith that we think we have is is make-believe. The the faith that we think we have, we may be assuring ourselves of something that isn't authentic and isn't real. Faith always produces movement. Faith is not static. It doesn't stay the same. It always moves somewhere. It always goes somewhere. It creates action in us. Okay, keep going here. If a brother or sister, he's just going to illustrate this, that this would be an example of what faith does. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed or the, uh, uh, for the body, what good is that? Another rhetorical question. It's not any good. So if somebody shows up at your door, you open the door, they've got a Speedo on, and it literally feels like Antarctica outside. 
And you shut the door and say, I hope the Speedo keeps you warm. And I hope you're filled with the snow. I I hope all goes well for you. Not only should you be drugged out behind the shed, but, but he's saying, listen, your faith is not authentic. If your faith doesn't produce in you a heart of God in that situation, then we need to take a step back and ask ourselves the question, do we have what the Bible would call faith? Okay, now, now this is a really important part here when you look at this text. Here's what I think most people miss in this, is this is like a bell that some people ring for social justice. Okay, so um, if somebody shows up at your door, they're um, in poverty, they're whatever, you should do something. Agreed, you should. But this is just one way of illustrating the point. There's a lot, he could have, in verse 15, he could have used a, a lot of different things to illustrate this. He could have said this. If there is unforgiveness in your heart and you just harbor it, what good is your faith? He didn't have to use social justice. He could have gone unforgiveness. Um, he could have said this. If there is sin in your life, and listen, I'm not preaching perfection here, so don't hear that. Um, doc, don't read in to what I'm not saying. If there is sin in your life that is going unchallenged, it's reigning in your life without a fight. What good is that faith? He could have said, if you would say that you've been a Christian for years and years and years, yet you are attempting nothing great for the glory of God, what good is that faith? I mean, he could go down the list of things here. And so here's what he's saying. If your faith creates no movement, then it is not biblical faith because biblical faith always creates movement in our lives. Always creates movement. Okay, then he goes on and finishes this last phrase, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so I, and I want to make sure we clarify this point, that we're not saying that works earn you salvation. We are saying that when you are saved, biblical faith creates great works. It creates movement in the life and in the heart of a believer. Okay, now flip to Hebrews 11. Um, This week, I've just gone back and read like Bible stories that just do your heart good. Like I would recommend maybe just take a week of your life sometime and pick out four or five great Bible stories and just read them. Reading through these this week has been just really encouraging for me. Here's one of the first ones I read. Um, In Genesis 6, you've got a guy named Noah. And God comes to Noah and he says, Noah, I want you to do something. I want you to build an ark. Now, it's so easy to read the Bible without thinking about the Bible and without thinking about the circumstances involved. Here are the circumstances involved. If you think when you read, here's what you're going to find. That Noah is 500 miles away from any sort of a sea. He's building a boat that's a thousand times bigger than his family would need. And on top of that, Noah has never seen it rain. And God comes to Noah and says, build an ark. Imagine the heck he catches for that. You know what I'm saying? That does not go down well with the guys on Friday night. You're building a what? Okay, now in in Genesis 6, 22, it's going to say that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. He built the ark. He did it to the specs. He loaded the, uh, he did the whole deal. Now, now let me ask you this. Okay, so Noah obeyed. 
even when it was absurd to obey. I mean, this is not a logical request. This one, you can't just kind of put two and three together and get five. It's just not adding up exactly right. So even in the midst of absurdity, Noah obeyed. Now, now here's my question to you. What was the means by which Noah did that? How did Noah obey? Okay, let's go to Hebrews 11, verse 7. And here's the answer. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, Noah did it. Okay, next, next sentence here. By his faith, he condemned, uh, condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So if you want the why for Noah's obedience, even when it was absurd, even when it did not make sense, the why to that obedience, the how to that obedience is he had faith. And in this case, the promise of God, which said, Noah, build an ark. I'm going to save you through it. It's belief in that promise that said, okay, I'll, I'll build the ark. I'll do it. It makes no sense. I'm getting heckled left and right. I am a fool right now, but I'm building an ark. Okay, so, so here, here's the truth for you and I. If we, be, if we want to be obedient people, people in line with Jesus, faith causes that. Faith causes obedience even when it's absurd. Okay, so this week I started reading this book. And if you want to email me, I'll show you how you can get it for free. I would recommend it. It will do your heart good. Um, The book is called Tortured for Christ. A really light read. I mean, it's no big deal, right? And so uh, it's a guy named Richard Warmbrand. And and I'm going to share two stories this morning out of it. I'm sitting here. I'm so encouraged. You're going to think, how are you encouraged by this? If you read the book, you'll be really encouraged too. I promise. It's not going to sound like it for a second though. Um, So I'm reading this book this week. And and here's here's the situation. Richard is in, or is in Romania, and this is when Hitler and the Nazis move in. They're sweeping across Europe, and they conquer Romania. They are the ruling power in Romania. Now, imagine being a Christian, and on top of that, a Jewish Christian. That's Richard, a Jewish Christian. In Romania, when Hitler's in power, not a good place to be. Okay, it gets even worse when Stalin, they push um, the Nazis out of Romania, and now it's a communist uh, regime in in Romania. And so here's kind of the setting that's thrown out right at the front of this book. You have got the communist leaders. They get all the religious leaders in Romania into the parliament building. There's 4,000 ministers, all these different denominations, and they're basically courting them. And the, the, the goal of this is for these ministers to all pledge their loyalty and allegiance to this communist regime, a, a known anti-God mass murderer of Christian regime, uh, regime. Okay, so they get them in there and leader after leader, religious leader after religious leader, pledging loyalty, pledging allegiance. And all of a sudden in the middle of that, I want you to listen to what Richard's wife said to Richard. Okay, it goes like this. It's going to be up on the screen for you as well. In in this situation, yes, we are with you. Our allegiance is there. You're a communist, anti-God, mass murderer of Christianity regime. We're with you. Here's Here's what the wife said back. My wife and I were present at this Congress. Sabina told me, Richard, stand up, and I think this is going to be a typo, wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, listen to this. If I do so, you will lose your husband. She said, I don't wish to have a coward for a husband. Amen. 
He stands up. He lets them have it. Result, 14 years in prison. 14 years. By faith, a wife looks at her husband and says, you be courageous. And by faith, obedience here, even when it's absurd, by faith, a man stands up and says, this would be a biblical response. If you want to know how you live obediently, even when it's not easy, even when it costs, even when it's absurd, it is believing the promises of God. That's how you do it. Maybe it's a Philippians. I mean, there's a billion of them. Maybe it's a Philippians 121 to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's how you live obedient. Um, okay, another story. Abraham. Um, most of you know this story, Genesis 12. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's a good one. Like you read it, I promise you're going to be encouraged. Here's what happens. Um, God comes to Abraham. He's 70 years old. Should be thinking about retirement, right? I mean, this is how do I kind of cruise in for the last few years? And so in the middle of a 70-year-old life, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything you've known. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham. Okay, so the first thing Abraham does is, um, where am I going? Where do you want me to go? I'll go. Just tell me where you want me to go. Abraham, I'm not telling you where. I just want you to go. Okay, so where do you want me to go? And I'll go. Abraham, just leave. Just go. Second problem. Abraham's 70. I mean, he is grandparent age here. And God says, you're going to have babies, Abraham. Grandparents, babies. Hard to think about. So let me ask you this. Where would the, where would the wherewithal to leave everything you've known, family, friends, house, all of that, with this journey that you don't even know where it's going? Where would the wherewithal come to, to trust God as a grandparent, we're going to have babies? Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went. By faith, Abraham did it. In the midst of uncertainty. Uncertainty is all over the place. How is this going to happen? How is that going to happen? Where are we even going? Uncertainty is everywhere. In the midst of uncertainty. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as in his, his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Verse 9. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, faith here, to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered himself faithful, who had made the promise. And so from one man... and. Listen to this. And he as good as dead. I don't know how old that, that's old. He is not looking good at this moment. He as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Faith. Okay, listen to this. Faith causes movement even in the midst of uncertainty. 
in the midst of uncertainty, when, when answers aren't to be had, like when you look at the situation and there's not a, this is how that plays out. Faith is the thing that causes movement in the midst of that. Okay, now, now this would be the other way to look at uncertainty. Maybe uncertainty in your life is one of God's greatest gifts to you to grow your faith. Maybe God doesn't want you to know what tomorrow holds. Maybe God doesn't want you to know how that's going to come about. Maybe God didn't want you to know how this thing's going to work itself out. Maybe God's greatest gift to you and I is to place us in very uncertain situations so your faith and my faith can grow. Okay, so, so here's how this has worked out for me over the last few months. And a lot of you have heard this story, but I, it, 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 I, I still crack up at it. Um, Stonegate is seven years in the making, but I would say there's been four months of TLC with Stonegate. I mean, there's been about four months of tender, loving care getting this thing rolling. And it's kind of gotten this group of people around it, pushing this ball forward. And I'll never forget this moment in kind of early May, right at the beginning of May, when it was decision point for Laura and I. I sat down and I said, okay, baby, the chips are in. We're doing this thing. I don't know how all these things are working out. I don't know how all the little details are going to play itself out, but we're in. And I looked at her and I said, baby, here's one question. I do not know how we're going to answer. In six weeks, we need roughly 60K to get this thing off the ground. I don't know people with that kind of money, you know? I'm a youth pastor at this point. We look up six weeks later and have more than we need. Last night, I, I, it just cracks me up how God has done this. Last night, I'm sitting at my table looking at my notes on faith. A guy calls me and says, hey, I'm going to come over and I'm going to give you a check. He comes to the front door, open the door, do the whole thing. $5,000 check. This week, another guy calls me and says, um, hey, I told you I was going to give you a $5,000 check. It's in. And I'm to, how does that happen? I mean, what is that? In the midst of uncertainty, faith is what causes movement. Your greatest gift from God is to place you in very uncertain situations that you can't squirm your way out of. You don't have enough wherewithal and intellect and all that to make it happen. Your greatest gift from God is to place you in situations that are above you and bigger than you. Because that is where your faith has grown. And the only way we move forward in the middle of those situations is faith. Like here, was the, here was the promise I hung on to in that six-week period. Um, Psalms 50, verse 10, basically is going to say this, and this is in the context of what God owns on the universe or in the planet. He's going to say this, that all the beasts of the forest are mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. And here's what he's saying, that there is nothing on this planet that I don't own, especially your $60,000. An abiding belief in the promises of God. Okay, let's keep reading here. And this is where some of the stories are about to change here for us. Um, you go to a Joshua 6, one of my favorite stories. Um, Joshua 6, the people of Israel are breaking into the promised land. And if you're going to go conquer a city that has walls around it, I'm thinking personally, where's a battering ram? I mean, give me something that I can bust a wall down with. 
I mean, give me a tower. We can kind of roll up beside it. Our men can kind of jump over the wall. Then we can go. I mean, give me something like that. Um, God says, uh, Joshua, get the band. We need the band to come out for the battle. Now, I, I, there's nothing against band. There's nothing against instruments. There's nothing against all that. I'm just saying, typically, you don't want the band to be fighting for you. Okay, so it is... <laughs> it, <laughs> It is a get the band out, get the instruments out. Here's the plan. Walk around the city today. Get up tomorrow, walk around the city again. Get up the third day, do it again. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, walk around the city seven times, get the band out, play the horns and look what happens. They do it. The walls come crushing down and God gives them Jericho. Now, what gives a person the wherewithal for an attempt like that? And here's the answer. Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the band plays the instruments and the battle is won. Okay, so, so what gives sustaining power for great attempts for the glory of God. What gives this sort of a sustaining power for it? Faith gives the sustaining power. The same faith that saves you is the faith that sustains you. Okay, so let's just apply this to, to Stonegate world just for a second. We can go on adrenaline for a few more months. I mean, you can go on just an emotional, we're in this thing for a few more months. But we're in a marathon here. I mean, this is a long haul thing. This is not a three month flame out thing. And, and so emotions are not going to carry us. Good feelings are not going to carry us. Adrenaline is not going to carry us. The only thing that sustains a long haul, great attempt for the glory of God is faith. That's it. For you, what's going to sustain you in the midst of an attempt like this is not me, not good worship. I, it not, what's going to sustain you is faith. Here's what great attempts will do for you and I when you put yourself in a position like this. Um, a great attempt is going to plumb the depth of your faith. How deep does it run? I'm excited for that for you and I. I think it's going to provide great opportunities for you and I. It's going to get to the bottom of how deep does your faith go? I mean, how, how deep is this thing? Faith always creates movement. In this case, it creates the movement for a great attempt for the glory of God. Okay, we'll bring this home here. And this is where the story really changes in Hebrews 11. Um, skip down to verse 32. And what more shall I say? I, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Listen, faith does not just sit back and say, okay, well, God's got it. We'll just let God do it. Faith is I'm going to attempt great things. I'm going to be active in this thing. Administer justice and gain what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women, this is all in the context of by faith, women received back their dead, raised to life. Okay, now here is the change, and this is what we're going to end on. By faith, that's the context. By faith, others were tortured 
and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others, and don't read over this without thinking, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. How about this one? They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Verse 38, by faith, because they all that the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Faith produces that sort of perseverance. Faith, faith produces perseverance in your life and in my life. Okay, so, so here's how we'll kind of wrap this up. Um, tortured for Christ, we're back. Richard Warmbrand. He gives this story. This is maybe midway through this 14-year prison stay. He gives this story of a fellow pastor who was thrown in prison with him. And he's just going through the litany of crazy things that you have happen when you have an anti-God communist soldier doing the torturing. And so he's going through the litany of, of these different things. And here's what happened to this one pastor. They threw him in a cell and basically they had beat him senseless. They had branded him with hot iron. They had cut him with knives. I mean, this guy had been through the ringer. They throw him in a cell and then they put starving rats in that cell with him. So if there's any moment that he's not fighting them off, you can just imagine what's going down. You've got to be sick to think of that one. Okay, now, now they're all, the goal in this is not to kill him. The goal is to get him to deny Christ. He won't do it. They bring in his 14-year-old son. And they start beating that 14-year-old son in front of his dad. And in that, here's how the story goes. It's going to be on the screen for you as well. Eventually, they brought his 14-year-old son to the prison and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat him until the pastor said what they wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bored as long as he could. Then he cried to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I can't bear them beating you anymore. The son, 14 years old, answered, Father, have courage, withstand. 14 years old. The communist, enraged, fell upon the child and beat him to death. And then it says this. He died praising Jesus. 14 years old. You want to know where the wherewithal comes for a 14-year-old? Look at his dad and said, have courage, withstand. Faith. A belief in the promises of God. That's where it comes from. Do you want to know where... um, the wherewithal comes to hang in when life is beating the crud out of you? Faith. An abiding belief in the promises of God. When marriage has become difficult, when jobs are lost, when death comes, when cancer strikes, when uh, disease sets in, when life does not go the way you want it to go. Perseverance is had by faith. I'm sitting um, across from a man two weeks ago, and he is a good businessman. He's kind of walking me through his business venture to kind of get him to the place where he was today. Crazy stories he's telling me. And in the middle of that, he looks over and asks this peering question I'm going to close with today. He looks me in the eye and he says, Rodney, and I'm kind of giving him the story of Stonegate, this this whole thing happening as well. He said, Rodney, I want to know something about you. 
Are you a man of faith? That's one of those questions that it stuck with me. Like that one's not leaving anytime soon. And I want to throw that question at you this morning as we close. Are you a man or a woman of faith? If so, there's evidence of that because faith produces movement. Are you a man and a woman of faith? Why don't you bow with me? How do you answer that question? That, that answer determines your obedience to Jesus. The answer to that question determines whether or not you will risk well for Jesus. This is the bottom line level of how you live as a Christian. This is what is necessary for every great attempt. This is what is necessary for holiness. This is how you defeat sin in your life. Sin is not defeated by white knuckling it. Sin, if you start peeling back the layers, is an unbelief issue. Faith is the answer for it. Your answer to this question determines everything. As we started dreaming about what we wanted a place like Stonegate to be, I can't find a chapter in the Bible that would articulate it any better than Hebrews 11. It was written to encourage a young and endangered church. And I think the application is beautiful for us today. We are a young and endangered church. I mean, we are still in diapers in this church. And we will make it because of faith. That's how. So I I couldn't dream of anything better than at the end of the day, our church fitting into a Hebrews 11. Our church being one of those listed in the, by faith, here's what happened. By faith, here's what went down there. But let me tell you where that starts is with men and women, families that are written in Hebrews 11. That's where it starts. My final plea with you, the only way you develop faith is to be men and women of the book. You have got to know the promises of God to have faith in them. You have got to know Jesus to have faith in Jesus. Be men and women. Train your families up to know the promises of God, to know Jesus. Be men of the book. We need Stonegate men that know their God and know their Bible. We need Stonegate women who know their God and know their Bible. So that at the end of the day, we can be a Stonegate family who by faith has great things written about them. That uses their page in the story so well. Faith is the how. Faith is the means. And so as this just kind of sits on top of you today, we're just going to sing a song to kind of close it up and uh, we'll do our offering. But I, I want you to think hard on this question. Are you a man? Are you a woman of faith? God, I pray that you would give us the sort of grace that enables that. God, that you would give us the sort of grace that would explode in our hearts to such a point and such a degree that, God, we would take great leaps for you in faith. 
That God, like Abraham, in the midst of uncertainty, that in faith we would move. That like Noah, in the midst of the absurd, we would be obedient. Like the people of Israel, God, we would make great attempts for your glory. And oh, that God, we would be a people who persevere and a church that perseveres. God, give us faith. God, give us, give us faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You can-